Do the cops and the clan go hand in hand? Hey everyone, I'm Medeva, and I'm an attorney who fights for social justice. You're listening to the third episode of my podcast, Bard and Bougie. If you're a new listener, Bard and Bougie is a podcast about law and politics that breaks down issues in a way that everyone can understand and centers those of us who get pushed to the margins. If you're not new, welcome back. Let's get started. This week, I want to talk with you all about protests and policing. One year ago, white nationalists packed up their tiki torches and gathered in Charlottesville, Virginia for the Unite the Right rally. Charlottesville is home to a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. When plans were announced to remove the statue, neo-Confederates, Nazis, the KKK, and other garden-variety bigots took to the streets in protest, in part to protect their racist participation trophy. In a predictable but tragic turn of events, dozens of people were injured. One woman, Heather Heyer, was killed when a man deliberately rammed his car into anti-racist protesters. Fast forward to August 2018. This dude, Jason Kessler, organized an anniversary protest called Unite the Right Two in Washington, D.C. Kessler wanted to have it in Charlottesville, but the city denied the permit on the grounds of presenting a danger to public safety. Given the group's hateful ideology and proven track record of violence even resulting in death, it makes sense that police have targeted white supremacists as primary instigators of violence and taken efforts to protect leftist counter-protesters from the far right. I'm just kidding. They didn't do that at all. In fact, days before Charlottesville, the Department of Homeland Security produced a bulletin that said the main driver of violence at white supremacist rallies is anarchists using violence as a means to oppose racism. The bulletin further explained that white supremacists were merely prepared to fight back. In other words, the feds think the problem isn't that white supremacy is inherently violent. It's that some Nazis got their clocks cleaned and want to defend themselves. When the government decides what groups are and are not dangerous, it informs how the police react to them. As white nationalists have stepped further and further into the spotlight, I've been deeply troubled by apparent differences in the way police treats protesters on the left versus protesters on the right. I want to get into those differences today and also talk about some of the legal cases underpinning the right to protest and what your rights are out in these streets. The First Amendment to the United States Constitution says that Congress can't make any law that limits your freedom of speech or your right to peaceably assemble. Because of the First Amendment, the government generally can't stop you or punish you for saying something just because they don't like what you're saying. Now, there are a couple things worth noting here. First is that free speech is about the government not being able to silence you. Everyone else can still tell you to shush or refuse to give you a platform to promote your views. Your First Amendment rights are not being violated because you said something dumb on Facebook and got unfriended, Nancy. ABC canceling Roseanne? Not a free speech issue. Alex Jones getting kicked off all social media not named Twitter? Also not a free speech issue. But if the government limits your speech based on its content and your viewpoint, that generally is a free speech issue. Second thing worth noting is that word generally, which I tucked in there. 
I say generally because the courts have always recognized some exceptions to the First Amendment. The most important thing to know for our purposes today is that not all speech is protected. Categories of unprotected speech are things like obscenity, defamation, and fighting words. I know fighting words sounds like something Yosemite Sam would say, but it is actually a part of constitutional jurisprudence. Courts have described fighting words as those that cause an immediate injury or breach the peace just by saying them. Similarly, some threats of violence are outside the First Amendment, as is intentionally trying to provoke imminent violence. Symbolic speech can also be outlawed under the fighting words doctrine, even if you're not actually saying any words. For example, in a 2003 case called Virginia v. Black, the Supreme Court said it was legal for a state to ban cross-burning with the intent to discriminate, and they emphasized that this form of speech is often used by the KKK as a threat of immediate bodily harm. I think this is important for you all to know, because a lot of anti-racist and anti-fascist advocates have been calling for something that sounds kind of like expanding the fighting words doctrine. The main argument of anti-fascist, or Antifa for short, is that any fascist Nazi demonstration does cause immediate injury and needs to be shut down. Granted, Antifa relies on a left hook rather than law enforcement, but that could be a whole other podcast episode. I also think this is important because what we're seeing in places like Charlottesville and DC and other protest hotspots is the government having to decide what's protected free speech activity and what's physical violence waiting to happen. This is where it becomes really clear that police respond to anti-racist and racist protesters differently. Howard Law professor Justin Hansford criticized this after going to Unite the Right To and going to protest in Ferguson about Michael Brown, an unarmed black teenager who was shot and killed by a police officer in 2014. Professor Hansford highlighted that the Nazis at Unite the Right were protected by the police. In Ferguson, protesters needed protection from the police. Ferguson police showed up to peaceful protests in full riot gear with military vehicles and weapons. There are tons of reports, photos, and video showing police intimidating and even tear-gassing protesters who weren't doing anything wrong. The United States signed an international convention banning the use of tear gas in warfare, but it is still legal as a form of domestic riot control for some reason. Back to Ferguson. The Department of Justice, or DOJ for short, actually investigated the Ferguson Police Department in 2015 and released an 100-page report documenting the police department's illegal and undemocratic activity. One of DOJ's findings was that Ferguson police engaged in a pattern of First Amendment violations and were arresting people for lawfully protesting injustice. DOJ said perceived injustice, by the way, but I'm going to go ahead and call it injustice. Compare the police abuses of protesters in Ferguson to police treatment of white supremacist protesters this past weekend at Unite the Right Too. Participants in the racist rally received a police escort in a private train car. Kessler, the head bigot in charge who planned the protest, praised the police for the level of protection they received and suggested holding more events in the D.C. area. It was like he was leaving a Yelp review for some kind of clan concierge. Five out of five stars would be racist again. 
Another troubling example of different treatment by the police is a white supremacist protest in Portland two weeks ago. On August 4th, hate groups called Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer organized a march in Portland. Portland police say they didn't know where exactly the rally would be ahead of time, so there was no security checkpoint to disarm attendees, as there were at the last two Patriot Prayer rallies in that area. Hundreds of far-right protesters showed up with weapons, and over a thousand counter-protesters showed up to oppose them. Neither side had permits, but multiple news outlets reported that police did not engage the white supremacists and instead flanked them and provided protection as they marched. Anti-racist counter-protesters were ordered to leave or face arrest, tear-gassed, and hit with flashbang grenades. If you're one of the Proud Boys, this is a great day for you. You're listening to You've Got a Friend in Me off the Toy Story soundtrack. Cops are proving to be great allies for white nationalists. I'll give you one more example and then I'll move on. After a violent white nationalist event in 2016, court documents revealed that California police actively worked with white supremacists to identify counter-protesters and prosecute activists with anti-racist beliefs. Is this really the company y'all want to keep? Is this really the disservice to our fundamental rights y'all want to commit? We should all be able to agree that it is a problem for the state to interfere with First Amendment rights and to discriminate based on viewpoint. It's easy to see how it's wrong for cops to treat protesters one way and counter-protesters another because of what they're saying. You gotta keep that same energy. But I would argue that it's especially harmful for the government to discriminate based on a viewpoint on behalf of white supremacy, thereby enforcing the oppression of people of color. A hard truth that we as a nation need to confront is that there is a substantial section of the police that shares a common goal with white supremacists. As Ferguson and Portland show, they even have the same playbook, furthering white supremacy by inflicting violence at the expense of people of color and anti-racist activists. That's not some liberal conspiracy either. As early as 2006, the FBI was reporting that white supremacist infiltration of law enforcement is a significant national threat. I don't want my right to free speech limited by any state, but much less by a white supremacist state. For the remainder of this episode, I want to focus on your rights as a protester, or a counter-protester as it may be. As I mentioned before, the government can't restrict you from exercising your First Amendment rights based on the content of your speech or your viewpoint. They can put some restrictions, though, on the time, place, and manner of you exercising your right. I'm going to explain this by taking it way back for y'all with the 1941 case called Cox v. State of New Hampshire. Willis Cox was an ordained Jehovah's Witness minister who was rolling deep with like 70 other practicers of that faith for something called an information march. They were walking down the sidewalks with signs and giving out information about a meeting they were going to have and said this was one of their ways of worship. The problem for Willis Cox is that he was in New Hampshire. New Hampshire had a law that said that you can't have a parade or a procession on any public street without getting a special license from the city. Cox didn't have that special license. He never applied for one. So he and his peeps were convicted for having a parade or procession without the special license the law required. 
Notably, that was the only thing they were charged with. The state didn't care about them distributing leaflets. New Hampshire was unbothered by them expressing a religious message. It had nothing to do with the content or viewpoint of Cox and his crew. The state just wanted him to get permission to take up the whole sidewalk. Cox appealed his conviction, and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. But the court was also like, dude, it's just a permit, and it had nothing to do with you personally. The court emphasized that a local government undoubtedly has control over the use of its public streets for parades and processions. So, as long as there's no unfair discrimination, they have the authority to consider the time, place, and manner when thinking about proper usage of their streets. To be clear, that permit law was a state-level law in New Hampshire. Whether you need a permit for your protest to be legal kind of varies by region, so you may want to check your local law. I would say usually you don't need a permit, but sometimes you might, depending on if it requires a road closure or blocks traffic or things of that nature. Even if you don't have a permit, you should generally be good if you stick to the sidewalk and follow traffic signals. But again, I don't know what's happening on the ground where you are, and the only way to know the law in your town is to check your local law. I don't want to hear about none of you getting arrested at a protest and saying, but Madiba said I didn't need a permit. Let's talk about cops, though. If you are stopped by the police, stay as calm as it's possible to be and keep your hands where they can see them. Say your actions are protected by the First Amendment and ask if you're free to go. If they say yes, get the hell out of there. If you are arrested, you've seen Law & Order, you know how this part goes. Invoke your right to remain silent and say you want to speak to a lawyer. Don't say anything. Don't sign anything. Don't do anything without a lawyer. You should also know that police sometimes go undercover at protests and attend planning meetings. Protect yourselves, y'all. I want you to stay safe. I focused on the harm happening to leftist protesters, but really, undermining the First Amendment weakens democracy for everyone. That should be a concern across the political spectrum. We have the right to protest, but many state governments are threatening to roll back that right. Since the Tangerine Tyrant was inaugurated, lawmakers in 31 states have proposed 64 anti-protest bills. Some of these bills even propose to make it legal for drivers to run over protesters if they're blocking roads, which is not the takeaway I would have expected from Heather Heyer's death. But here we are. This is why I do these episodes and try to get y'all hyped and keep y'all informed. We have to know our rights, use them, and defend them. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you feel empowered and know your rights when you go out to a protest and pay attention to police treating protesters in ways they shouldn't. Bard and Bougie is available on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can also rate episodes and leave comments. Please tell me how I'm doing so I know I'm not talking to myself out here. Some folks have also reached out with issues they want me to look into for future episodes. I am here for the audience engagement and do want to address your needs, so go ahead and send me your wish list. Episode transcripts will also be posted on the Bard and Bougie Facebook page, which you should like and follow for more updates or just to hit me up. If Facebook's not your thing, use the hashtag Bard, B-A-R-R-E-D, on any social media platform. I'll be on the lookout. 
Thanks again, everyone. Tell your friends to check out the show and tune in for a new episode next week.